welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we ushered in a new look to the Traveler. It's definitely bolder than the previous look, promotes feature stories with larger, more colorful photos, and hopefully makes it easier for you to find the latest news. Among the stories we brought you last week was one that looked at the risks hikers and climbers take when they climb onto the flanks of Mount Rainier, and another that looked into the backcountry of Petrified Forest National Park. We also reported on the priority list of deferred maintenance projects that interior officials want to be tackled with funding through the Great American Outdoors Act, and how that list was actually lacking in details. And we told you about some backcountry travelers in Yellowstone who tried to boil their dinner, two chickens, in a hot spring. You can find those and other articles about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. Having just gone through the 2020 presidential election, what better time to talk about the symbol of American democracy, the bald eagle? The bald eagle first appeared on the Great Seal of the United States in 1782, holding in its talons an olive branch and 13 arrows. Less than 200 years later, the national bird of the United States was nearly extinct. Whether an endangered species can rebound and how quickly this can happen depends on many factors. Food availability, disappearing habitats, exposure to pollutants, successful reproduction, and the scientists who assess and measure these things. In this week's podcast, the traveler's Lynn Riddick talks with one such scientist, Dr. Brian Watts, an authority on bald eagle populations around Chesapeake Bay. His most recent research indicates that when it comes to breeding success, bald eagles that utilize national parklands around the Chesapeake Bay may have a slight advantage over the bay's other estuarine systems. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the Parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and Leadership Center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. A team from the Center for Conservation Biology at the College of William and Mary took a look at nestling bald eagles in and around National Park Service lands within the lower Chesapeake Bay. The team was tasked with evaluating the exposure these young eaglets had to heavy metals, pesticides, and other contaminants. 
They also wanted to see how the reproductive rates of adult bald eagle pairs in national park properties compared to the populations within the bay's lower sanctuaries. With me to discuss that study is director of the center and lead investigator, Dr. Brian Watts, checking in from his office in Williamsburg, Virginia. Hi, Brian. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, thanks for having me. You've done a lot of research on birds of prey, including peregrine falcons and golden eagles, but it looks like a significant portion of your most recent work has been on the bald eagle, especially around the Chesapeake Bay. So I want to start by asking you to paint a picture of what bald eagle populations in the Chesapeake Bay area were like in the early part of the 20th century. The Chesapeake Bay appears to have always been a really important location for bald eagles. In the early part of uh, the 1900s, we don't have a lot of information about uh, the population size, but there was a lot of egg collecting, a lot of adult collecting by bird collectors. Uh, there was a lot of shooting of eagles at that time by farmers and trappers and watermen who felt that they were competitors. By the 1930s, uh, the population was estimated to be about 800 pairs or so by a survey that was done by Bryant Terrell. And then after the introduction of DDT, uh, after World War II, the population clearly began to decline rapidly. And we do know what the population was beginning in the early 1960s. Jackson Abbott started an aerial survey in 1962 and reproductive rates were very poor and the population reached a low by the early 1970s of somewhere around 60 to 70 pairs. Uh, we had the benchmark um, legislative actions of the banning of DDT in 1972 and the passage of the Endangered Species Act in 1973. These were really two federal thresholds or benchmarks that really improved um, the future of bald eagles um, here in the Bay and throughout the continent. And so uh, once they were protected and DDT began to ebb within this system, we began to see a rapid recovery. In fact, the population has recovered at an annual rate of about 8% per year since the late 1970s. And we have seen dramatic recoveries uh, far in excess of everybody's expectation. Our current estimate of the bay population is about 3,000 breeding pairs. The uh, recovery threshold that was set by the Fish and Wildlife Services Chesapeake Bay Bald Eagle Recovery Team was 300 pairs. And so we are now 10 times what the original recovery goal was for the bay. That's really impressive. Why are bald eagles good indicators of the health of the Chesapeake Bay? Bald eagles are great sentinels um, for aquatic systems. Uh, bald eagles are sea eagles. Most of the resources that they get, particularly during the breeding season, are um, from the water. About 95% of the prey that they feed to young are fish. They also eat muskrats and mammals. They also eat a lot of turtles. Uh, from the bay and elsewhere. Uh, in the wintertime, they tend to go more upland once the fish go into deeper water. But during the breeding season, they are very closely tied to the aquatic uh, ecosystem. And they're an apex predator that concentrate uh, potential contaminants. 
And so they represent a really good uh, sort of indicator of ecosystem health. Now your study evaluated two factors, the presence of contaminants in nestlings and reproductive rates between eagles on national park lands and non-park lands. How did this study come about and does it tie into broader efforts of your center and other organizations seeking solutions to environmental problems around the Bay? The study came about when we were seeking funds in 2015 to conduct the 2016 annual bald eagle aerial survey. Um, Bald eagles have been surveyed in the Chesapeake since 1962, each year by airplane. And we have done the Virginia portion of the bay and we have completely covered um, all of the tributaries um, up and through 2011. And so we, after 2011, the population was doing so well that we started to only survey a couple of tributaries annually. In 2016, we wanted to do a benchmark survey. And so we were seeking funds for um, the larger survey. And uh, I was in contact with Elaine Leslie, uh, the head of the resource division in Fort Collins. And she had the idea of Uh, supporting the survey, but also maybe doing a checkup on what the contaminant situation was. The Park Service has been long involved with contaminant monitoring, particularly in the the Great Lakes. Uh, There's a Park Service biologist there, Bill Crouch, who has done long-term contaminant work in the Great Lakes region. But we really haven't done much contaminant monitoring here in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Stan Wiemeyer, who was a Fish and Wildlife Service biologist with the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center, uh, did some contaminants work with eagles in the 1970s and again in the 1980s. In the 1970s, he showed that the upper part of the Potomac had some of the highest DDT levels uh, recorded throughout the range. Those numbers had come down by the 1980s. Um, but we really have not done any consistent monitoring of contaminants in the bald eagle population in the Bay really since that time. And so this was an opportunity to do a couple of things. One, to do a checkup on what the contaminant levels were here in the Chesapeake and to maybe compare using the same techniques to the population in the Great Lakes, which has been much more uh, consistently monitored for contaminants. And so this was a real opportunity to see where are we with contaminants um, in the Chesapeake. You know, this type of project is just an indicator of what the Park Service is about. Uh, The Park Service properties that we have here in the Lower Bay are really centered around historical issues. Uh, Colonial National Historical Park, George Washington's Birthplace National Monument, those are really historical properties. But the staff in those properties um, have always been good stewards of the land and they have always been concerned about the wildlife. And so this project is an example of that, how the Park Service um, has consistently tried to be good stewards of the land and the wildlife populations that depend on them. In the broader Chesapeake Bay, we are losing to development about seven square kilometers per year since 1980. And one of the great things about Park Service land is that they are not being developed. And so when you look into the future in terms of some of these wildlife populations, Park Service lands, Fish and Wildlife Service lands, 
they will uh, increasingly be more and more significant to these populations over time as the private landscape is increasingly developed. You mentioned Washington's birthplace uh, national monument and the Colonial National Historical Park. What other uh, National Park Service lands were included in the study? Yes, we on the Potomac, we worked uh, some nests at Fort Washington, Piscataway, George Washington's birthplace national monument. Um, we also worked on the York River at Yorktown Battlefield, and we worked here on the James River on three properties, Jamestown Island, Swans Point, and Petersburg National Battlefield. So there were seven uh, Park Service properties involved. We also uh, did some sampling on some other federal properties and some private lands that surround those park properties. How did you select the non-Park Service properties? Yeah, we were interested in pairs that were in the same area to increase the sample size beyond what we could get on the Park Service properties. Um, there are a lot of pairs, and that's one of the interesting things uh, about the park properties. What we're seeing over time is that the parks are uh, supporting higher densities of bald eagles than the surrounding private lands. But we wanted to supplement some of the, the sampling. Is it fair to say that those national places and some of the other private places, private lands that you selected, are areas that you're likely to see the greatest numbers of bald eagles in the Chesapeake Bay region? Yes, some of those really do support uh, Colonial National Historical Park, um, I believe has 12 uh, pairs now. Um, and one of the interesting things is that when Jack Abbott started the Bald Eagle Survey uh, in 1962, he wrote that um, Jamestown Island was sort of the epicenter of the Bald Eagle population in the Bay. At that time, Jamestown Island supported three uh, breeding pairs. So uh, fairly dense, it's not a, a huge property. In 1963, there was an adult female that was picked up under one of those nests in convulsions and died from DDT toxicity. Of course, for a long period of time, there were no breeding pairs on Jamestown Island or the James River uh, entirely. But now we have eight breeding pairs just on Jamestown Island. Um, so it's been a tremendous uh, recovery on some of these historic lands. Now, why are eagles counted in terms of breeding pairs? It's the metric that we use to track the population. So bald eagles have delayed maturation. Um, it takes them five years, typically, until they breed for the first time, and they go through a, a succession of molts and plumage types. And so... Uh, you know, if we were to have 3,000 breeding pairs in the bay currently, that would equate to probably nearly 20,000 um, individual birds of different age classes and the adults. So we, we represent the breeding population as occupied territories or breeding pairs. Do eagles breed and mate for life? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, they do have a very strong uh, pair bond. And I guess what I would say is that the, the divorce rate appears to be fairly low. It's not that that doesn't happen, that you don't have a female or a male be expelled by another female and it go possibly and breed with another bird. But as far as we know, the rate of um, pair breakup is very low in this particular species. 
Why did you choose to evaluate nestlings for contaminants versus adult eagles? Yeah, the great thing about nestlings is that they are almost entirely tied in terms of their growth and the nutrients that come into the nest to the aquatic system. Um, they are being fed fish from a local area. So the adults are going out and getting fish locally and braiding them to provision the brood. And so they just happen to be a particularly well-tied resource to the aquatic system. And so they, they happen to be a very good indicator, a tightly wound indicator. Now, your study incorporated a two-flight approach in a Cessna 172 over areas with eagle populations, one flight to survey and another flight to assess productivity, that is, how many eggs or eaglets were in a nest. Your team located nests and activity by flying over areas likely for eagle habitats, and I was wondering how you could spot eagle activity from a plane um, but then I discovered that eagle nests are huge, in fact, the largest nests of any North American bird and can be as deep as 13 feet and 8 feet across. Still I'm wondering how difficult was it to spot nests from a moving aircraft, uh, how you got a good look at the contents, and how big were some of the nests that you spotted? Right, yeah. So we do this survey um, every year, and we are typically flying back and forth between the shoreline and about one kilometer off of the shoreline, and we are meandering through that space. We fly the initial survey at about 400 feet. 400 feet gives you the ability to be able to see well into the, the canopy but it also allows you to see a fairly large swath at once. It seems to be sort of the best height to accommodate both of those. Uh, so we meander back and forth searching all of the forest along the tributaries. Um, and when we come onto a nest, we map that nest and then we can come back later and check it. Uh, in terms of being able to see these, yes, they, they are large, um, and many of them do stand out. Uh, eagles like to um, nest in the tallest tree within a stand, and so oftentimes the nests are up above the forest canopy. And so many of them are fairly easy to see. When we come back a month later to check on the productivity, um, we actually drop down to each nest. So we'll fly directly down um, onto the canopy and look out the window and record the contents. I can typically count the chicks and also evaluate the age of the brood uh, when we look at them during the productivity. Do you try to wait for um, a point in time when the eagle adults are no longer sitting in the nest? Uh, we time the first survey um, around the peak of incubation. Um, so we want to know during the first survey that there is a nest there and that the birds are making a breeding attempt. So that the, and so we know that the, the um, territory is occupied. We time the second survey uh, when the chicks are a bit larger and we can count them easily in the nest. And so the, the two surveys are timed around the breeding cycle of eagles here in the bay. Let's talk about the process of getting blood samples from the nestlings. Um, who climbs the trees? Yes, in this particular study, um, we had a, 
an arborist tree climber that's experienced that works with us. Um, in past studies, I've climbed the tree. Some of our staff climbed the tree. Uh, you know, in this particular case, we had somebody outside the center to climb because we were needed on the ground to collect the blood. Um, but if we were just doing banding or something like that, I might climb the tree. The process is these um, nests are typically 75 to 85 feet up in the crown here on the outer coast. It's mostly in Loblolly Pines. And so we will climb up to the nest and into the nest. We'll set up a supply line. We'll raise a, a cloth bag up and each chick will be lowered down to the ground on a rope and we will process the chick on the ground and then it will be raised back up and put back in the nest and the climber will then rappel down. When we're just banding or collecting blood, we normally like to enter the nest when the young are four to six weeks old. They are really compliant at that age. And on the lower end of that age, they sleep most of the time. They eat and sleep. And so you can go into a nest and they'll be asleep and you ban them and they're drowsy, you put them back in the nest, they go back to sleep, they probably wake up later and didn't know anything ever happened. The same thing with blood. If we're deploying transmitters, we have a later entry because the harness fit needs to be to an older young. So we'll typically go in at about eight weeks old, lower the chick down, fit the harness and put it back. We typically do not enter the nest after eight weeks. Um, eagles fledge at 12 weeks. And the last month or so of their development really is coordination. They're at full size at that point. And it's too easy to get a bird to jump prematurely. And so we typically don't enter the nest after eight weeks or so. Yeah, I was curious about how much squirming and thrashing is usual when you handle the eaglets and bring them down to the ground to take um, the sampling. I understand that you follow certain protocols for their handling. Can you explain those protocols? Yeah, the, the chicks, the, the young birds that we're handling that are four to six weeks old, they're very compliant. They're not aggressive at all. After six weeks, um, their personality changes a good bit and uh, they become more aware, they're more upright, typically um, less than six weeks. They're mostly um, laying around in the nest. The older chicks um, that are a bit more aggressive, uh, particularly the larger females, um, we have to have more care, both for the handler and for the bird. And so we'll typically um, control the, the legs and the wings and put the birds in. The older chicks that are um, less compliant, we'll typically put a hood on um, so that they'll calm down. Uh, once the hood is put in place, which makes it so that they can't see, uh, eagles are very visual animals. Um, they will completely uh, settle down and, and they don't struggle at all. When we're taking blood, it's basically like uh, going to the doctor's office. We use the same equipment. We use vacuum tubes and uh, we use butterfly needles. Uh, we're extracting blood from the brachial vein in the wing. It's a large vein. And so it's very similar to a nurse taking blood from your arm. Uh, in this particular study, uh, we were collecting six cc's 
and that was split into two samples. One of the samples went to a heavy metals lab in Wisconsin and the other sample went to the Virginia Institute of Marine Science to analyze for uh, organics. And so uh, we collect the blood sample, ban the bird, uh, we'll weigh and measure the bird, and then we'll raise the bird back up into the nest and you know we'll leave it there. You're right that some of these nests are very large. You know, I have been in many nests where I can lay down and not hang over the edge. Um, they are uh, platform type nests such that the surface is fairly flat and they are very uh, carefully designed to the supporting structure. Oftentimes that is a, a crotch in the top of the crown. It might be a lateral crotch. Um, but they're incredible builders in that they're able to design these nests to fit into the supporting structure and they build them up with large material. The nest surface itself is made of fine material. Um, it's grasses that they pick up from nearby fields or marsh grass and so it's uh, soft lined material. The nests are oftentimes littered with old prey remains. It may be turtle shells, it may be uh, muskrat skull, or fish remains. And so the pairs vary quite a bit. Some pairs are very clean nesters and they'll take the prey remains away, some of them not so much, and they'll let the prey remains build up in the surface of the nest. So it, it varies. And you say uh, you've laid down in one of these nests and it supported your weight? Oh, I've been in a couple of hundred nests. All of them will support your weight. These are large structures that are built well and you don't have the feeling when you're in them that there's any uh, sort of risk of the nest coming loose from the tree. These are very solid, large structures. I've laid down in a couple hundred nests, yes. And eagles add on to these nests year after year. They use them, uh, the same nests, every year, correct? Yes, we here in the Bay have a 30% spontaneous relocation rate, meaning that uh, 30% of the pairs build a new nest. We have a high storm frequency here that can damage nests in the off season. But yes, um, the ones that are stable uh, through time, they will add to them uh, year after year. And so oftentimes from the air, it's easy to tell if that's a first year nest. Um, they tend to be shallower. Ultimately, how large they're able to build the nest depends on the crotch structure itself. So if there's enough room, they'll continue to build, but oftentimes they will build to the limit of that crotch and then can't functionally add more material. But some of the nests that have very tall crotches can be extraordinary in size. They're the, they're the size of a Volkswagen. They're, they're large structures and it takes a significant tree to bear that weight. And one of the reasons they need that large structure is that when these pairs have three chick broods, that takes a lot of space to raise uh, three young eaglets. And so they need a large surface area to accommodate that. Is that a common brood, three eaglets? It has been here in the Chesapeake Bay. In fact, the Chesapeake Bay is such a productive aquatic ecosystem that um, we have historically had the highest three chick brood rate anywhere in the range. Three chicks is typically a maximum brood and it takes a lot of food to raise a three chick brood. Most other populations uh, 
you know, three chick broods are much more rare. Here in the Chesapeake, there are years when um, we may have 18 to 20% of the pairs having three chick broods. That has changed over time as the population has sort of trended toward capacity. How many eaglets did you sample? We sampled 26 nests and we only pulled blood from one eaglet per brood. I'm Lynn Riddick and I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Watts, Director of the Center for Conservation Biology at the College of William and Mary. After this short break, he'll tell us about the results of his bald eagle research on national park lands. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. I'm Lynn Riddick and I'm back with Dr. Brian Watts, Director of Conservation Biology at the College of William and Mary. Brian, your study looked at breeding performance, heavy metals, and persistent organic pollutants. What did your study find and conclude? Yeah, what we found uh, in terms of the survey is that Park Service lands support higher densities of eagles than surrounding private lands. Uh, we also found that uh, breeding success was higher and that productivity was higher. This is something that we have been seeing throughout the Bay for some time, so it wasn't a surprise to us that um, these parklands uh, were supporting a higher number of eagles per unit area and that they were producing more. 
So we sort of expected that result, and that's what we found. What were some of the metals and contaminants that you tested for? Yes, we, in terms of the metals, uh, we tested mercury, lead, and cadmium. In terms of the cadmium, uh, none of the samples had detectable levels of cadmium. More than 85% of the samples had detectable levels of lead, but in no sample was the level of lead higher than what we consider to be background. So lead, at least for the young, does not appear to be a factor of concern. Uh, lead is of growing concern for eagles and some other raptors across uh, North America. It's mostly to free-flying birds during the hunting season. And so here we have young in the nest, not during the hunting season, and their lead exposure, at least here in the Chesapeake, was low. Mercury is a widespread and increasingly so uh, metal across North America. And uh, all of the eaglets that we tested had detectable levels of mercury. The levels here in the Chesapeake, though, were much lower than other populations that had been tested. And that's consistent with a project that we did a few years ago, uh, collecting shed feathers of adults at many nests throughout the Chesapeake. Uh, the levels here just seem to be lower. There's some exceptions to that, and that is that the pairs that were around lakes and in the tidal fresh reaches of the bay had higher levels of mercury compared to ones that were in the higher salinity reaches of the bay. Uh, this result is also consistent with other studies that have been done in the past. Mercury seems to be more available in fresh water compared to these estuarine areas, and we also found that but um, none of the mercury samples that we had approached levels of concern. So the Chesapeake Bay, in terms of heavy metals, seems to be lower than other populations that have been monitored in recent years. In terms of the organics, the dominant organics that we looked at were PCB. Uh, PCB is, um, was widely found throughout the nestlings, but the levels were low. We had some clusters of high PCB levels around uh, DOD installations. These are things that we have known from the past from some previous samplings that there are some uh, PCB contaminants on some military properties and those are getting into the Chesapeake Bay and making their way to eagles that are surrounding those properties. But none of the levels that we um, found in nestlings during this particular study uh, reached any threshold values of concern. So there were none that were, had high enough values that would impact productivity. In terms of the pesticides, um, uh, the dominant compound that we found was DDE, which is a metabolite of DDT. So most of the DDT has been degraded to DDE. Over 90% of the pesticides that we found in eaglets was accounted for by DDE. And that particular compound, though widespread, was in low levels in the nestlings. And none of the nestlings had values that approached a level of concern. And so when you look at the contaminants, heavy metals, and the organics across the board, 
um, you'd have to say that the Chesapeake Bay is performing fairly well. It's not that there aren't pockets of uh, legacy, what we consider to be legacy compounds uh, that are available to eagles, but the values are low compared to some other places um, across the country. And the productivity that we have had since the 1980s would suggest that. I mean, we have had a phenomenal productivity over the past few decades, suggesting that, you know, the birds are doing well within the Chesapeake. What is your personal feeling about the results? I know the numbers of the contaminants and metals were low. Still, were you encouraged or were you at all distressed knowing that young predatory birds have traces of heavy metals and contaminants in them? Well, I guess my takeaway is that um, in terms of these legacy compounds, uh, we're headed in the right direction. You know, when you compare uh, the levels that we have now compared to what Stan Wehmeyer had in the 1970s, it's a fraction. You know, it's a small fraction of the levels. And so the bay in general is heading in the right direction. You know, the great thing about a Sentinel program you know, is that we can come back in the future and retest these same landscapes, eagles on these same landscapes, and see um, how the bay is doing then. With contaminants, you know, there's a sort of never-ending parade of things that we introduce into the system. And so it's important that periodically, even though things are, you know, fairly clean now, uh, that we continue to monitor uh, into the future. Now, I have to say that this study sounds like it was a fairly enjoyable exercise. Yes, it's stuff that we do on a daily basis. We have worked with eagles for a long time um, and many other species, osprey and so forth. And so, yes, it, um, you know, the recovery of eagles, not just eagles here in the bay, uh, osprey, great blue herons, uh, the big fish eaters that were hit so hard by DDT. The recovery of these populations is a conservation biologist's dream. I mean, uh, you dream about having recoveries like this. And so, yes, it, uh, seeing the population numbers rebound on an annual basis um, has been a thrill. Is there anything else you might like to add that we haven't talked about yet? I'd like to say that you know, when you think about the recovery of these big uh, species like bald eagles that people are so familiar with, and, you know, you think about, you know, what led to these recoveries, what changed the tide with these populations, and really things are rooted back with the decisions that we as Americans made in the early 1970s. Those benchmark decisions is what enabled the recovery that we've had since then. And so really, you know, when you think about the recovery of this particular population, it really uh, goes back to decisions that we as a society made. And it is great today to be able to go around the bay. You hear eagles overhead constantly. And I think that is some payback uh, to the public here in the Bay for the stand that they made in the early 1970s that we didn't want to lose this species. 
And, you know, it's inspiring to see uh, Park Service biologists um, and other federal biologists working together toward these recoveries. You know, they matter for a system like this and for the residents that live here. Dr. Brian Watts, I want to thank you for your time. I wish you continued success in your work and please keep us posted. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll travel to Alaska, by Zoom, that is, to talk with Kim Hecox about his book, The Only Kayak, and his observations of how visitors and climate change have impacted national parks in the last frontier. If you missed last week's episode, National Parks Traveler is participating in Newsmatch, a nationwide matching gift campaign that drives donations to nonprofit news organizations around the country like ours. Listeners like you can play a key role in keeping our news operations strong. Now through December 31st, Newsmatch will match every new monthly donation and double any one-time donation up to $5,000. You can play a big role in enabling the traveler to expand its coverage of national parks and protected areas by donating to our nonprofit organization. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org or mail a check to National Parks Traveler, Post Office Box 980452, Park City, Utah, 84098. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.